first question today. Do you actually believe past life? What is the logic behind this reality of reliving soul? Well, first of all, it's not a matter of, of soul. Um, just briefly returning to a point I made yesterday, or the day before yesterday, uh, which is that Buddhism is um, is uh, not a belief system kind of religion. So it doesn't expect you to believe in things and then tell you you can't be a Buddhist if you don't believe in this or you're going to hell or something like that. Um, so it's not a like a compulsory belief. Um, you're a Buddhist, therefore you must believe in this and this and this. And, um, especially in the case of things which are very um, difficult to gain any direct experience of. But the, the angle at which Buddhism approaches um, these things is to make a very clear distinction between what you know and what you believe. This is a, a huge confusion in, in the Western world. They see again and again and again of people um, say, it's true, I know it's true. So they say, well, how do you know it's true? Um, because it says so in my Bible or in my book. Therefore, it must be true. But that's, that's not knowing in, in the sense that we would use that word in Buddhism. It's a belief, isn't it? When people say, they know something, and they say that with great kind of emphasis, what they usually mean is they have an absolutely sort of bulletproof 100% faith in that. They have no doubts in that. And so they, they would use the word, I know. So I know because it's in my book. Um, now you say, well, you know, what proof do you have? Well, often the, the rationale is simply that I just wouldn't feel like this if it wasn't true. But that's, that's uh, not, very, um, not very logical, is it, in the sense that there are so many things in our life that um, I'm sure we've all had absolutely um, like 100% conviction in, and then we found out afterwards that it wasn't the case. Now, obvious example for many young Westerners is Santa Claus. I mean, I was absolutely convinced in the existence of Santa Claus when I was a small child. Quite a disappointment to find out that um, it wasn't uh, really what I thought. But I'm, I'm using an example merely to point out that when you look in your heart and you feel you're absolutely convinced, yes, you know, you read something in a book and you say, yes, that's not knowing, that's believing. And these are two different, fundamentally different things. So in, when we talk about something outside of our experience, like past lives, then our beginning point is a very humble one. We begin with the point is, I don't actually know. No. Uh, okay, then that, that's, that's a point where um, we begin. But then from there we say, but I have certain beliefs. Like my personally, I don't know. I don't have memory of past lives. I've met people who've told me 
uh, past lives are supposed to have had, but I don't know whether or not that it was accurate or not. Um, the, uh, but I do have a very strong belief in in rebirth, um, what should I say, an unshakable belief in, in rebirth, but that's not a knowledge of it. And and so why why do I have um, this strong belief in rebirth? Well, firstly, um, because of the teachings of the Buddha himself, um, which refer to this on many, many, many occasions. And in the, the Buddha's teachings um, that I have been able to verify or to put to the test have all, over the last 30 years, every single one of them has proved to be correct. So that gives me a reasonable faith that in those areas of the Buddha's teaching which I have not yet penetrated, that there's a high likelihood that they're, they're going to be true. So this is a, a trust or a faith or a conviction based on experience and based on my study and practice. And similarly, there are, and there have been for the past 2,500 years, there are many um, people in Thailand today, both monks, nuns, lay people, who do have the ability through their meditation um, experience to re recollect past lives. Now, one of the reasons you won't hear about this too much is that um, monks, particularly forest monks, um, take the monks, uh, the, the Vinaya, the Pravinaya, very seriously, and they won't talk about uh, these kinds of experiences with lay people. Uh, they'll only talk about, they're only allowed to talk about them with other monks. And um, one of the reasons for this is that it's kind of very exciting. Um, if you know someone can remember past lives or maybe you can remember your past lives or can read your mind and all these kind of things, you kind of lose the plot of what, uh, what Buddhist practice is all about with this kind of uh, uh, fascinating stuff. There are also many cases, and these are well documented, um, uh, of children in particular usually in the age of three, four, five years old, and not only in Buddhist cultures, but in non-Buddhist cultures, uh, who have quite detailed memories of past lives. Um, Professor Ian Stevenson, University of Virginia, is the main scholar in this field, um, and has uh, written a number of books where he's collected all his data um, on, on such children. Yeah, one of his uh, most well-known books is 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation. <clears throat> so there are, there's a lot of um, data, there's a lot of research, there's a lot of information out there. And uh, then there are cases of people who are able to recall past lives through hypnosis. So I, I would say that given the, um, the, the Buddhist teachings themselves, and the ex direct experience of meditators, spontaneous recollection of children throughout the world, and the, um, the hypnotic regression has taken place throughout the world. These, these are all very strong evidence supporting the hypothesis of rebirth. We can't say um, it's an absolute proof, 
but I would contend that, that it's a hypothesis which um, uh, is, is a, at least you could say a very reasonable one. I, I, after many years, I just recently um, came across um, uh, an article um, detailing the, the sort of the conventional um, or conservative scientific uh, response or reaction to Professor Stevenson's data. And basically there's nothing there in saying, well look, if we accepted this we'd have to throw out um, so many of our central uh, scientific theories. Um, it's not worth it. I mean, so it's not actually a, um, a critique of the evidence, but it was, it, the critique is more that it would mean revising so many things that we take for, for granted already that we're not willing to do that, which is not very strong argument, certainly not what we may call a scientific argument. I'd just like to point out here that, that um, one of the most interesting, I'm, I'm not uh, very scientifically minded and I, um, I wasn't very good at science at school, but um, I have been in, over the years been interested in like cognitive science, brain science, this kind of thing. But uh, probably one of the most interesting fields for me is the, the history of science and how the role that science has played in different countries and different cultures. Um, because scientific theories are constantly being revised. If you take the orthodox view, they're constantly being refined. So this is the idea of they're getting better all the time, but that's, that's um, questionable in itself. But if, you, uh, if we take a scientific theory as being that the, the explanation which most adequately covers all the information on the subject that you have, then um, the, the assumption can be given this body of facts, there is one kind of theory that explains it um, adequately or the best, and that's the sort of accepted theory. But in many cases, um, you find that there are competing theories. There are a number of different theories which all, uh, at least logically, can explain all the phenomena, all the information you have at hand. So the really fascinating question is, who decides and on what grounds to decide what well, this is the theory that's accepted and this is considered to be unscientific or you know, beyond, beyond the pale? And what we find is uh, over the last two, three hundred years that the criteria which decides what is scientific and what is not scientific are often the values of the culture, the prevailing religion, the values of the, the people in power in a particular society. So in other words, non-scientific criteria are deciding what is and is not scientific. So if you, if you look at the scientists today, after all science is a product of minds of scientists, um, I think you can put them into two, two groups. One group are those people that believe in God, some kind of a God, Christian God, Muslim God or whatever. And then you have atheists um, who are generally materialists. Um, so it's like after you're dead, that's the end of everything. Now, if you have a scientific theory 
um, which offends all the atheists. You might sort of look at the uh, evolution and say that Darwin's theory doesn't explain goodness or altruism or there's something there which can't be explained mechanically. It suggests that there's some kind of a, uh, a god or something behind evolution. Then all the, the materialist scientists are not going to be very happy with that. They're going to think it's rubbish. But you'll have the, the theists, all the, all the scientists who believe in God, will say, oh yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Similarly, if you have a, um, a theory which um, pleases the materialists, but um, the, the people who believe in God don't like very much, it's sort of like the evolutionary um, psychology these days goes in uh, kind of all kinds of... Um, noble traits are explained in terms of the selfish gene or, or of um, the needs of um, uh, prehistoric people being translated in present day, into present-day formations and so on. But the, um, whereas the, the Christians, the Muslims, the people who believe in God, those scientists, they won't like it. Materialists will really like it. So you have a champion. But so the question is, what about rebirth? You know, why is that, you know, so so considered, oh, that's not scientific. Um, I would say it's because it offends both main power groups in the scientific community. People who believe in God don't want to accept it. It doesn't agree with their religious um, books. And the materialists can't accept it either. So it has no powerful group within the scientific community which will stand up for it. So I, I would say, given the supporting evidence for it, which is very weighty, and I would, I would say it's, it's more convincing than the, the logical underpinning of a number of scientific theories generally accepted today, but it just doesn't have the, the backing, doesn't have the power behind it. So that, that's a few thoughts on rebirth. And, uh, uh, do you consider karma to be external scales of justice existing as an independent entity precisely dispersing punishment and rewards or merely the psychological effects of acts and intentions? Um, well, karma is is intention. So there's not a like a, a external independent entity or sort of like a, some form of a deity or a god of justice and weighing up the scales. And the the this process, um, this karmic process, is incredibly complex. To the extent that the Buddha says only a, like a fully enlightened Buddha can, can fully understand it. Um, the, the analogy um, I would like to make is if you compare our life to a river and you uh, conceive of, let's say, um, a factory on the banks of the river uh, releasing acid waste into the river. Now, you, if assuming that that water is pure, then the addition of acid waste 
will have an um, effect of lowering the PhD value of the water. The water becomes acidic. But let's say a bit further down the, uh, down the, the, the river, there's another factory reduce, uh, releasing um, alkaline effluent into the river. Now, if that, if that river was pure, then you would say, well, the pHD level would, would rise significantly. But if the water is already acidic, then um, the effect will uh, maybe uh, somewhat unexpected. Or let's say you have um, some particular kind of weed that, uh, or um, being or fish or something that lives in the water and it can only survive as long as you have a PhD level which, which doesn't drop below a certain level. I can't remember the PhD levels, let's say three or four or something. So you have one, one factory re uh, releasing acid into the water and it doesn't reduce the PhD level enough to kill off the fish. But another, another factory further down might reduce far less acid into the water compared with the first one but because it just tips over that danger level all the fish might die you see um, so you know I could sort of expand on this analogy in, in great great detail but the idea is that that every time you act there's always there's already um, a lot going on and sometimes there's um, an exaggeration and, and an increase in the power of certain uh, effects. Sometimes there's a reduction. Sometimes these things kind of like, um, just kind of chongan, because if, um, so that it's, it's so, so complex. Um, so, the, and you know, this is, and it's also not a process which begins and ends in one lifetime. It goes on over many lifetimes. And so in this lifetime, we're, when we're born, we're already um, carrying with us the, uh, the results of actions and intentions in past lives. We're called uh, like old kamma. And we're constantly creating new kamma. And the results of the kamma that we're creating now, together with the old kamma, is uh, it will be experienced not only in this life, but in the next life and in future lives. Now, one of the one of the effects of dhamma practice, the Buddha says, is that um, certain kamma that we have created, perhaps in past lives, perhaps in the future life, which would otherwise lead us to be born in a lower realm. Um, <clears throat> If we practice in this lifetime, we, we can speed up the karmic process and receive the fruits of that kamma in the present life and in a much reduced, at a much reduced level. So, uh, so often meditators, some get some kind of illnesses or, um, or you see great, uh, great monks or sometimes car crashes and things like this. Um, they, there, there's this kind of acceleration um, of karmic, um, karmic processes through, through this um, purification of the mind. Now, the classic um, analogy here, also another one, is that um, the kamma is compared to, say, 
uh, a spoonful of salt. Now, if you tip that spoonful of salt into a glass of water, then the whole taste of the water has changed. Now it's salty water. But if you were to tip that one, that same spoonful of salt into a large tank of water, like a big um, cistern, and then turn on the tap and drink the water, then the water would probably um, taste um, uh, just normal, like normal tap water. So it's not that the salt has disappeared, that you've got rid of it, but because it's been dissolved in such a large amount of water, um, its present is, is not um, experienced in the same way. And this is, this is uh, the way in which Dhamma practice works. It's not that uh, old kamma disappears necessarily, but a lot of it becomes, it's as if it becomes dissolved as the mind expands and becomes brighter and lighter and, uh, and calmer. So this is a way of uh, Dhamma practice working through old kamma. But what it is definitely not is a kind of a fatalism. It's not saying that because this happened in the past, you've got to receive um, this karmic result in the future because you stole something from that person, someone's going to steal from you or, you, or, or he's going to steal from you or something like that. It, it, there's so many um, uh, competing and contending causes and conditions. But nothing is lost. This is the point. Every positive um, intention, every wise, kind intention has a wise, kind, positive result. Every negative intention has a negative result. But you can't, ju- you can't just look at somebody's life and say, oh, he did all these bad things, therefore, you know, he should come to a, a sticky end. You know, I, I used to find this in, you know, when I was a child, you know, all these absolutely evil Nazi war criminals, you know, who end up living lives of luxury in South Africa, South America. You say, how, how does that work, you know? Um, it, it's obvious that, that you can't see in a, in a short period of time. It's, it's necessarily going to pan out to someone who's done really evil, nasty things, are going to experience all kinds of evil, nasty um, events in, in their own life. So, okay, I'm... Maybe answering a bit too much length, I'll try and speed up a bit. Was Buddhism a religion your family practiced? If not, when, why, how did it interest you? And no, I think my parents probably never even heard of Buddhism, or hardly. Um, no, um, I. Uh, well, my my mother um, is a bit more identifies with Christianity than my father. My father's kind of anti, anti-Christian, anti-religion, um, sort of uh, more, he, he, came, he was brought up in a very poor family and um, saw a lot of poverty and suffering as a boy and a young man. And he said he went to some of the churches to listen to what they were teaching and didn't have anything to do with his life at all. And so he rejected it. But he had his own so it's his own kind of private religion, very honest, kind person, uh, a lot of integrity. But uh, when, I was, when I was small, um, you know, I, was, I was sent off to church, and then I think I was about seven years old, and I said, I'm not going anymore. 
and uh, my my dad said you should go it's a good thing to do and I said well if it's so good why don't you go and he said <laughs> and uh, so you know when you're a farang you can talk like that with your dad and um, and uh, so he said all right so I, I stopped going then when I was about seven and after that never never really thought about it you know, I just I, I found the whole Christian tradition totally weird, alien, unbelievable. Um, when I was, uh, actually I was probably about eight years old and the uh, um, BBC came to, came to do a documentary, like it was a religious program at our school and I was one of the ones selected. Um, and they asked me what, what, what I thought and I said, don't believe any of it, it's a load of rubbish. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So I, I was kind of proud of myself, but afterwards, you know, when all my friends got on TV and I didn't, I thought maybe I didn't really answer as well as I might. Um, <laughs> anyway, for me, uh, the interest was, you know, like I've been really um, trying to um, stress to you, my interest all began, I'm interested in life, you know, what's this all about? You know, what's a good life? What's the best life? Why is... Uh, why is the world such a mess? Why is there so much injustice and cruelty and suffering in the world? Why is it like, does it have to be like this? You know, is there, is there anything that anybody can do about it, practically speaking? What are the root causes um, of this uh, complete uh, and utter fiasco that, um, you know, is the human condition? And so I started to read a lot. Um, reading books of philosophy and psychology, uh, of literature, and uh, totally um, uh, unimpressed by Western philosophy. And particularly when, you know, for me, uh, if I read something in Western philosophy, I wanted to know, well, who was the philosopher and how did he live his life? And you read the lives of these people and they're just fools mostly. Um, you think, well, why should I be interested in, in their philosophy when they can't even live their own lives well, you see? So I so rejected pretty much of that. Um, and then, uh, fortunately, uh, one day I, I came across um, a book on Buddhism and it just seemed to be absolute common sense and absolutely, yes, that sense of conviction and the basic teaching that um, human beings um, want to be happy, but they don't know how to. Um, how to make themselves happy. They constantly create causes for suffering for themselves and other people because they don't understand themselves, because they've never educated themselves well enough. They've never trained themselves to let go of craving and, and greed, hatred and delusion. And so my conclusion was um, a life which is focused on the eradication of greed and hatred and delusion and selfishness and one devoted to the cultivation of kindness and compassion and wisdom um, and is, is the best life, for me anyway, and that um, having gained some experience in this and some skill in abandoning these, uh, these negative uh, qualities and developing positive qualities, then sharing that knowledge with other people would make like a fully rounded kind of life. That's the kind of life that I wanted to live. But in, in practic practically speaking, how to do that was not at all clear to me. 
So after I finished um, my A-levels, then I worked for a while, saved some money and went traveling uh, for a couple of years and my, in India. And by the time I returned from India, then I realized it was um, the only thing that I really wanted to study and practice was, was the Buddhist teachings. And then I found out on my return to England that it was possible to become a monk in Thailand. And so um, that was my next step and been here ever since. Okay. Okay. There's a, two questions about procrastination. Now, somebody asked me if I would talk about procrastination. So I said, well, maybe tomorrow if I've got time. <laughs> um, um, okay. <laughs> oh, here's another one. Um, why do we procrastinate and how can we overcome it? Well, I, I have a confession here. I'm a bit of a procrastinator myself. So I've been, um, I've been writing a book for 12 years now and it's still not finished. So I'm, I'm probably not the best um, you know, authority on this. I think that um, like anything, you know, we can go into a lot of the, the sort of psychological um, background to it. But, but uh, practically speaking, um, it's, it's down to sort of time management skills and making firm uh, determinations and the, um, you know, that, that's uh, I think very well known um, story of the, um, the teacher with the, the rocks and the pebbles and the sand and the water, uh, put, the, put the rocks into the container, it looks full but actually you can uh, tip pebbles into it, into the spaces between the rocks. Then it looks full, but you can still tip sand between the pebbles. Still, now it looks really full, but you can still tip water in there. So if you start, if you have four things, you have rocks, pebbles, sand, and water, and you work out the right sequence, um, you can really fill that container up. But if you start with the water first, or you start with the sand first, um, then you're not going to be able to get the pebbles in, or the or the rocks. And so the idea is that you look at um, the things that you have to do and you make some um, judgments as to which are, the, which are the rocks, which are the pebbles, which is the sand, which is the water. Um, so in other words, what is important and um, urgent? What is important but not urgent, urgent but not important, and not urgent and not important? And so um, you, you have to set up a schedule for yourself where uh, you put the things which are both important and urgent first. And then um, the, the difficult one is putting things which are important but not urgent before the things that are urgent but not important. And that's why you know, things like meditation, you can say that's important but it's not urgent. You don't meditate every day. No one's going to get on your back. No one's going to tell you off. You're not going to um, suffer from it in any kind of tangible way. Um, but it's, it's important. And you need to make, make time for it. Um, making written commitments. There's some kind of weird 
um, psychology involved here, but if you write something down, it has a power that, that something which is not written down doesn't. You can try this for yourself. Now, if you write something down as a kind of a pledge to do something, and you show it to other people, those two things together, that has real binding power. So you can try that. If it's something you've been meaning to get around to, but you make a public pledge written down, um, you, uh, you'll be surprised how powerful that is. Um, there's a, um, a, a very interesting thing happened during the Korean War in which 99% uh, of American prisoners of war in Korea collaborated with their captors. Um, and that's compared with quite a minority uh, during the Second World War. So it's not like the Americans are, you know, are not tough or they're, um, they just sort of caved in under the pressure. It was due to the um, particularly... Um, uh, uh, clever uh, manipulations of the of the Chinese, and this became a you know really big thing. And I, I don't know if you if you um, if anyone's seen a movie called The Manchurian Candidate. This this book and movie was first made when all this um, all this data first came out after the um, after the Korean War. Now, so one of the thing one of the techniques they used was. They would, uh, they would have these kind of discussion sessions and they discuss things like democracy or something like this. And I say, okay, you know, you're American, you're a Democrat, you know, you don't like the communist system. Are you really trying to tell me, you know, that it's perfect in every way? Is there absolutely nothing at all wrong with America? You see? So, you know, he's got reason. Well, I mean, it's not perfect, you know. I mean, there's got a, you know, there's got a lot of things, aren't there? You know, sort of racial prejudice and social inequalities and so on. But so somebody would be very sort of magnanimous. Yeah, okay, well, not over the top yet. So then they take you up on this and, 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 and get you to uh, expand upon it once you've made that initial small concession. And then the next thing is you're required to write an essay on it. So it's written down. And then what they do is they'd have you read it out or someone read it out over the, over the camp radio. So now from being someone who's just made this kind of small concession, yeah, the country you live in um, is not perfect, suddenly, you know, your, uh, your take on what's wrong with your country is a, like a, it's a document and it's being read out on the radio. And then people feel they kind of they lost their identity and now they kind of don't know who they are anymore and become very psychologically vulnerable. And that was when the Chinese would use them to piece little by little, step by step, to make more and more concessions, to be consistent with the step they've already made because we have this deep psychological need to be consistent. And so they're drawing upon these principles that people are not really aware of um, and use it. And these are things that have subsequently been used in advertising and persuasion uh, manuals everywhere. But the, um, the, the point really I'm making here is that these things can also be used in a, in a positive way and using this written, written commitments uh, made public, at least amongst people that you look up to or respect, and it does have a certain power over you. <clears throat> okay. 
What is love? Is it a fantasy? <laughs> Obviously a, a boy's question, this one. Uh, I, uh, uh, I've, been in, I've been in relations, but I don't think I've ever seen it. Well, uh, love is a, it's a, it's a very wide... There's a book on this I've written. It's downstairs, I think. You can read it. Um, uh, I mean, there are so many different kinds of love, aren't there? There's platonic love. There's love between parents and children. Uh, love between uh, uh, humans and dogs and, and uh, pets. And, um, and um, sexual love. There are so many different kind, kinds of love. So, yeah, I, would, I don't think it's um, a fantasy. I mean, it's uh, certainly, um, uh, you know, a, a major part of many people's lives. But there's a lot of projection and, and a lot of um, fantasy around it. And people have ideals of love. You know, it should be like this. It's taken from books and, and, and um, movies and uh, whatever. So they sort of put love up on a pedestal, you know, sort of pure, wonderful love, a sort of romantic ideal of love, and then people get very disappointed uh, when the actual business of relating uh, to each other as human beings is, is, not, is not very much like that at all. But, I, um, but uh, love, love is, is, is actually scientifically measurable. You know, there's... there's um, when people, they've done a lot of studies when people are first in love and then they do all these kind of brain scans and, and, um, and they see, yeah, there are all these definite kind of physiological changes when, when you're first in love. But that, 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 and that's probably like the romantic ideal. But generally speaking, those, those physiological changes, brain, brain changes, um, usually don't last more than 18 months. So if, if your whole relationship is based on that kind of excitement and, and that you know, sense of being someone really special and always thinking that person can't get them out of your mind and so on and so forth, if you think that's what love is, well, yeah, it could be, but it's, it's not very long-lasting. You can't sustain that for very long. And if, um, if you recognize that's okay, you, you need other things to, to bolster a relationship. Um, it's very superficial if it's just based on that. And if, if that becomes, it just becomes like a drug, you know, when that sense falls away with this person and you, you, you get so bored and you want to find that again with somebody else. And so you're just going on and on and on and just uh, never develop any, any lasting relationships or make any real commitment because you're, 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 you're addicted to that kind of love drug, um, which is not very uh, mature. I think there's a, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of prayer. I mean, when I was a teenager, I had a girlfriend, and we go out, and then one day my girlfriend says, I love you. And it's just, what do you say when somebody says that to you, you know? It's like, it's really awkward, you know? If you just, you say, well, I don't love you, that's, you can't say that. <laughs> And if you're just quiet, you know, you know, so you say, yeah, yeah, I love you. And so that became it, you know, from then every time, every day, you know, I love you, I love you, you know. And for me, it didn't mean anything. I just felt like I got, I got sort of forced into this somehow, you know. And so, so um, yeah, sometimes this word just doesn't mean, just doesn't mean anything, you know. Um, so I think to, uh, to try and look after that word and, and just look into it you know what does it mean in your life and uh
Um, <clears throat> in the business world, where competition is a regular part of business, uh, oftentimes one can't always reveal the truth, uh, or have to, or we have to lie sometimes. How can one conduct oneself to be consistent with the teaching of Buddhism in this context? Well, um, first of all, I would say that the, the precepts are what we call training rules. So you take them on as a training, as a way of educating your, your conduct. So as, as a standard for you, as something to bear in mind, as this kind of a, uh, gives you a compass in your social life. So in, a, in some difficult situation, it's always in your mind, it's like, is this true or not? Um, am I speaking the truth or not? And I think if, if you really take that precept seriously, then if you're honest with yourself, then many of the times when otherwise you tell a lie, a small lie, it's not really necessary. You know, we tell ourselves it's necessary, but often um, it's for reasons of embarrassment or wanting to create or protect a particular kind of image that we want the other person to have of us um, or it's just kind of lazy or can't be bothered to tell the truth because uh, you know afraid that the other person won't like it and there'll be a kind of an argument or something but the but speaking the truth um, is is not sort of you know a practice which is you can just separate from all the other areas of practice. So, you know, this comes up a lot, uh, leaving aside the, the, the question of like, business practice for a moment, um, where a lot of people have doubts is this whole question of white lies. You know, well, somebody, somebody says, do you like my new dress? You know, and it's absolutely horrible. You know, what, uh, what do you say? You know, um, or, or somebody makes you some food, you know, and it's sort of, uh, is it a Roy May? You know, and it's, you can hardly force it down your throat, you know. Well, what do you say? You know, um, so the you know the usual response is well, you you know you just fib, and it's not really a bad thing because you're not trying to gain any advantage. You just don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. But the, if we're using these these rules as a training, then it becomes a wisdom practice because we we're put right on the spot. Um, the question is, in that particular case, how one can we avoid lying without hurting their feelings? It's not just like either speak the truth and hurt their feelings or tell a lie and uh, keep them happy. But can we find, are we smart enough to find a way of not breaking the precept and not hurting their feelings? So this is why keeping precepts is actually like a, a very good practice. You have to be really sharp and on your toes. <clears throat> and I was asking some, some, some people the other day, like, well, okay, if somebody makes you something that's, like, really awful, and you say, is it delicious? Do you like it? What would you say? Any ideas? What would you say? Hmm? You have no comment. Well, yeah, well, try it. Try it next time, see if it works. Um, yeah. yeah, you can say things, well, it's, it's different. You know, uh, or um, I've never, I've never tasted anything like this before. <laughs> you know, you're not lying. You know, um, but you don't have to. 
Okay, now your turn. Somebody, somebody's wearing this really awful dress and they say, do you like it? So what would you say? Anybody got any idea? <laughs> hmm? Anybody got any ideas? Hmm? Yeah, like? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, maybe that's just enough, just to sort of deflect the, the question. I think for men, one of the most difficult ones is when their girlfriends cut their hair. Because <laughs> when girlfriends cut their hair, they're really insecure, you know, and, and it's really important to them that you like it, and usually you don't, you know. And so. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, kind of a practice to um, leave you with. I'll go back to the question of business. And um, there... <laughs> I think that in, in many cases that same principle applies, that, that you can find ways of protecting your, your position or your interests without necessarily misleading um, directly. Um, being truthful doesn't mean that you have to reveal all the truth all the time. Um, that's, that's, not, that's not necessary. Um, in the end, uh, one of the... Um, one of the uh, sort of hidden, uh, what we say, sort of values of a, of a company or a business and something which is not quantifiable, can't be measured, is trust. And if a company is trusted, then often it will get a lot of business that a company which is not trusted won't. So sometimes being honest may in fact mean you make a loss in certain areas of your business. But um, I, I am of opinion that you would also gain uh, through your good name. You know that you're a trusted company and that you keep your word and so on and so forth. So I think that um, it's not just um, you miss out or you're always going to be taken advantage of if you tell the truth. One, if you try to develop this skill in speech and communication, um, but secondly, that being honest and not mislead, intentionally misleading uh, will have long-term benefits for the good standing um, of, your, of your business and company. <clears throat> okay, if we're in a scenario where we have to kill or be killed, e.g. robbery, should we protect ourselves by killing the thief? Or should we let the thief end our life because choosing to kill equates to accumulating a grave sin? Um, the, the, the thing with these kinds of moral dilemmas is that you know, they, they, it's, more, it's like a cartoon version of the truth or what an event actually entails. There are, there are usually so many possibilities and so many uh, causes, cause of conditions present that it's very, very rare. It's just uh, uh, it comes down to kill or be killed. Um, usually there are um, other alternatives. But anyway, um, the the Buddhist answer to these kinds of moral dilemmas 
is that um, all situations are complex and that um, your, your refuge is your ability to be mindful and aware in the present moment um, to the extent that you have the confidence that whatever arises you will be in a position where you could make the best possible judgment um, whether that, that involves running away or, 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 or whatever um, that, that's, that's how we, we, we answer it. you can't just say in this situation I would do this and that situation I would do that because over and over again if you ask people what would you do in a certain situation and then you put them in that situation it's very rarely that they act in the way they think they should or they would um, it's because when you're thinking about it you know you're not in any danger you're not under any pressure and so on and you know you have certain mental processes and certain logic um, but in, when you're in the situation itself um, that goes out the window but um, I think that number one uh, criteria would be not to kill the thief um, but where, whereas uh, you know, what the alternatives um, to that might be um, I don't know but the, the, the point is, if you, if you have a completely untrained mind, then if you're in any kind of pressure, situation, danger, or your family's in danger, then your mind just reverts to sort of Stone Age kind of uh, responses. Whereas if your mind has been trained and you'll be able to maintain that coolness and equanimity of mind, even if you're in a position of, of great stress and danger, then you're going to make a good choice or the best choice that can be made given the situation. Do you believe in spirits, ghosts? Have you had any experience with spirits? What determines who can see and feel spirits? Mm. Um, Yes, I believe in spirits and ghosts. Um, I've, I've had very sort of minor experiences, nothing really kind of exciting. But I know, um, you know, a number of people who have. Um, the again, this is you know, you can either believe or you don't believe. This isn't kind of an article of faith in Buddhism. You know, you have to believe it. Um, the the, the crucial teaching um, of, of the Buddha here is, uh, is, is in the chanting book actually and refers to the anisong or like the, the positive, the good um, beneficial results of metta practice and Buddha said if you uh, develop metta as a vehicle, I mean it doesn't just mean per metta every now and again but developing it so it's a really strong force in your, in your mind and heart. The Buddha says you are loved by human beings and you're loved by Atmanut. Manusat doi, like Amanut. Amanut, you know, spirits, ghosts, devas, everything. So, whether or not um, there are ghosts or spirits in terms of your own well-being, um, you can say, if you have metta, in your heart, you develop metta. If there uh, are no spirits, uh, then you're happy and safe. And if there are spirits, you're happy and safe. 
So it's kind of of unusual um, importance. But um, when you make merit, then um, sharing merit with all beings in all different realms, including the Amanut, um, is a good thing to do. Um, the the ability to see spirits or to to um, experience them again you have certain people who have um, either through meditation or for one reason or another developed this ability in a past life and so they just have it naturally in this life you see this all a lot of people in England have this kind of um, sixth sense or this kind of special special abilities and and people many people in Thailand but it is, can be developed to a much more um, subtle um, degree through through meditation, and uh, there there is in fact um, a a sutta in the Tripitaka in which the Buddha recounts his experience as before he became enlightened when he was meditating alone, and he said as he's meditating after a certain stage of his meditation he just see these like flashing little lights in the trees just web web you know like this, and and then after his meditation had. Um, developed to another stage these things started to take on a certain form and so there are a number of stages as his meditation became more and more powerful that after a while he could see that these were shining beings and the word the word deva or tewa tewada it means shining being these things are very very bright and shining and then after a while he could see how they were dressed and then after a while he could distinguish well that's a deva from this heaven realm, and that's a deva from that heaven realm. And then finally his, his meditation reached the stage where he was able to discern what kamma, what good kamma that particular deva, deva in that, that realm had created in order to be reborn like this, like this. So the Buddha gets a very, very detailed um, account of his his own development and how he was able to see these beings, um, in this case, um, Devas or uh, Tevandaha. says, uh, Are there still questions that you yourself are still searching for answers? Would you mind sharing with us, please? Yeah, one of the questions that I, I still haven't answered is, like, when you have a retreat and you ask everyone not to chat and talk, why so many people talk so much? This is something I still, after so many years, have no good answer for. Um, well, I'm, I'm not um, an arahant, so I still, uh, there are still things that I need to do in my practice um, and understanding of the... Four Noble Truths and of the three characteristics is not complete. So yes, there's, there's always more to do. Um, 